Great. Thank you, Mariah, and thank you to the Boston Bar Association for giving us the opportunity to present this timely discussion to you. As Mariah mentioned, my name is Rocco Grillo. I'm a managing director with Alvarez and Marsal, a global leader for our cyber risk and incident response investigation services. Um, I've been involved with some of the most high-profile investigations and in helping companies respond to uh, some of the most sophisticated attacks in the last decade. But today we've put together an agenda with some of my esteemed uh, industry colleagues, and I'll introduce you in a moment. Um, I'm going to hand off to uh, Pete Marta from Hogan Lovins, and if you can uh, go through, Pete, that would be great. Great. Thanks so much, Rocco. Hi, everyone. I'm uh, Pete Marta. I'm a partner in the privacy and cybersecurity practice at Hogan Lovells out of our New York office. Um, I help clients navigate a wide variety of challenges in the area of cybersecurity, everything from pre-breach uh, preparedness to actually going through an incident uh, to the aftermath of, of an incident where uh, regulatory investigations and litigation are almost a, a certainty these days. Uh, before joining Hogan last year, I worked at uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, where I was the chief privacy counsel for several years. Uh, and before that, I served in the U.S. intelligence community. Costa? Yes, uh, good morning. This is uh, Costa Sergikopoulos. I'm the global information security officer for Procter & Gamble. Been with the company uh, for six years now. Uh, we operate in 85 countries, have over 500 locations. Uh, across the globe. Uh, prior to joining Procter & Gamble, I uh, was the uh, regional CISO for UBS, and prior to that, uh, served in a number of financial service organizations as a CISO, most notably in NASDAQ OMX, where I helped the organization uh, overcome a pretty significant, uh, what I would say, state-sponsored attack at the time. Worked closely with some of the uh, former colleagues uh, from Peter's organization, uh, in the NSA and across intelligence agencies. And uh, I'm glad uh, to be here with you today. And uh, thank you to the Boston Bar Association for giving us the opportunity. Thanks, Gustav. Rich, over to you. Rich, yep. Hey, good morning, everyone. I'm Rich Jacobs uh, from the FBI. I've been uh, with the FBI now for just shy of uh, 22 years. And before that, um, I was on Wall Street for a bit. Uh, right now, I run the cyber branch uh, for the New York office. We're the largest cyber program for the FBI in the field. And we investigate all cyber attacks, whether they're nation, state, or criminal, doesn't matter, uh, for the 13 counties uh, that we cover here. Uh, thanks for the opportunity to be here. Uh, look forward to chatting with everybody. Great. Thanks, Rich. And thanks, uh, Pete and Costas. Megan, if we could show the um, agenda really quickly again, that would be great. We've got... Um, a wealth of information. I don't know if you can bring that. There you go, Megan. I'm going to go through this quickly. Appreciate everybody, uh, the attendees making the time. Ordinarily, this would have been in person. Um, you know, that little pandemic thing, understatement, of course, uh, has really uh, turned the world upside down and put us virtual, including uh, this presentation. But there's a wealth of information that you're going to learn today and some of the things we're going to just talk about the latest trends in the, with cyber attack vectors, including ransomware. There's so much going on there. It's got its own bucket. Um, we're also going to talk about not just doom and gloom and the sky falling. What can we do to be better prepared and, you know, the proverbial cyber resilience? Um, there's still, you know, a lot of uncertainty when these attacks hit. 
We're going to hit on who to call, when you should call, what's the right cadence. There's some things that are going on that we'll touch on as well. You've got you know, experience from all different areas, including law enforcement, a global leader um, from you know leading Fortune 500 company, as well as a leader in um, the, the, the legal and privacy space. And then from there, we'll just talk about some things that we should be doing as we move forward. And then to wrap it up, we'll have a uh, short Q&A. If any of you have questions, by all means, there's the chat box. But at the same time, our contact information is available. If you think of things as you go back into your daily, uh, your, your day jobs, for lack of a better term, and something pops up, by all means, feel free to reach out to any one of us. Um, if we go back to the regular screen, um, Megan, that would be great. So as I mentioned, you know, for myself personally, you know, just over the last 15, 20 years, seen a lot in the IT security, we call it cybersecurity, cyber resilience just continues to evolve. Um, I'd be remiss if I didn't point out how things have really, um, you know, gone through the roof with the whole COVID pandemic. And we, we've seen email phishing spike through the roof. Biz, uh, business email compromises and fraud, um, ransomware attacks, which we'll talk a little bit deeper on shortly, um, attacks on major third-party service providers, um, and you know, Rich had mentioned nation-state attacks, whether it was you know, to commit acts of fraud or even now with a lot of the vaccines and R&D uh, companies, pharmaceutical companies are being targeted. We're seeing attacks all over, but I think the real piece here um, if you listen to those five things, as much as I wrapped it in with the pandemic, it's not necessarily new types of attacks as much as they've skyrocketed. And, you know, Costas, I know when we were preparing and just, you know, and working with you over the years in the industry, you've seen a lot across the across the land. What are you seeing and what can you share with our audience today? Yes, thank you, Rocco. I think, again, if you go back to the beginnings uh, at least certainly in the U.S. in uh, in the early days of March of this year, um, you can see a pretty rapid uh, progression and a very uh, swift evolution of the uh, landscape, particularly with cyber criminals. Uh, but more important than that, I think for organizations uh, that have an international presence, you could have seen uh, a bit of this activity going back uh, in the, in the, the late fall particularly in Asia, as we saw this take off uh, in China, for example, we started to see some of these attacks evolve over the uh, global uh, landscape. Uh, certainly phishing, uh, significant with a pandemic, and I think it's no surprise really uh, in terms of what they're going to be targeting, it's opportunity, uh, it's fear, it's leveraging. I think what's uh, top of mind, not only uh, for governments, uh, but also top of mind for individual uh, leaders. Uh, I monitor my personal email just like I monitor what's happening at work. Um, and I've seen a very significant rise in COVID related, whether it's medical treatment, fraudulent attempts. Uh, for, for example, there's been quite a, uh, a few Netflix, uh, you haven't paid your Netflix uh, bill. Uh, that continues uh, Amazon. Um, so you're seeing very targeted and focused uh, email uh, scams uh, that are being leveraged uh, by people and individuals and companies uh, that are uh, basically working remotely. And, and that's the fear. 
uh, that I typically hear from executives, we need to do something, we have this uh, under control. Certainly, I, I think the latest uh, trends and what you can hear uh, in the news and what you can read about is the ransomware attacks, and I know we're gonna cover that, uh, but I think supply chain is under significant pressure uh, today across the globe and not just here in the U.S. Great, thanks for that, Costas. And, you know, whether Pete or Rich, uh, you know, I want you to jump in there, Pete, with a lot of the clients that you've been helping support. Rich, yeah. I'm sure you, you can wrap us up on a, a number of different things, especially when you talk about the cyber criminals that are exploiting the, the state of affairs today. Yeah, no, that, that's exactly consistent with what uh, our clients are seeing, unfortunately. Um, it did predate COVID, um, but COVID has resulted in just an e explosion of the attack surface, uh, what we call the attack surface, which is where you can be attacked with everybody working remotely. Um, and, you know, we're going to, we, we've already said it, um, ransomware, ransomware, ransomware. Um, it is, the, the, it has increased in size frequency and impact. Um, if we were having this conversation a year ago even, um, we wouldn't be talking about the, the numbers that we're seeing today in terms of amounts demanded um, and just the sheer number of, of organizations across industries um, that, that have been impacted. And I, and I think one of the takeaways today for every company should just be um, Everybody's a potential victim. Uh, I, I see companies tell me uh, that you know they're they're not the biggest financial institution, so uh, they're not a likely victim. Or um, yeah, you know, they're they're just in an industry that that isn't as interesting. Uh, criminals are just there to get paid, and they don't care whether the money comes from a again a large financial institution or a tiny retailer. So, Rich, uh, maybe over to you. Yeah, I'll jump in with a couple of real specific things. So as Costas mentioned, ransomware, uh, definitely one of our top priorities right now. It's, it's happening to victims more than ever uh, right now. We'll talk a little bit more about that, uh, I think, in just a couple of minutes. But I want to shift to uh, some other trends. DDoS extortion, denial of service extortion attacks. There's a massive campaign that is going on around the world right now, not just here in the U.S., uh, where victims are receiving emails from a criminal group that is claiming to be Fancy Bear or Lazarus Group or some other state-sponsored group. Uh, most of these groups, of course, the real ones, uh, will never announce that they're going to attack you. So that's one clue right there. Uh, but these emails that the victims receive are pretty consistent. They generally say that we're going to attack your organization with a massive DDoS attack in six days. And the deadline always seems to be on a Wednesday for whatever the reason. Uh, mm -hmm. And at two terabit per second, that's a massive attack is what they're threatening. And to show you that they have the capability, they go ahead and they will launch a very small denial of service attack on your public website or some other public facing infrastructure for a 30 or 45 minute period. Uh, and in many cases, we have seen them follow up with a victim before the deadline with a second small DDoS attack just to try to get you to pay that extortion fee. What we have not yet seen is the actual massive attack on the deadline that they promised. And we are of the opinion as of right now that they do not have the capability of doing that. Uh, even though their botnet, what they use to launch these DDoS attacks, is getting bigger by the day. So that could change. But right now, a lot of it is a lack of capability. 
But if you see these emails, uh, just know that they're pretty consistent and this is an ongoing campaign. You're likely to experience a small DDoS attack, but probably will not sustain that big one that they promised on the deadline. Uh, the other thing I want to talk about, uh, we also heard uh, discussion about managed service providers. Uh, while we are tracking nation states right now very heavily with regard to the elections, because that's our priority right now, there's a lot of other nation state activity taking place, one of which is uh, targeting MSPs and also third party providers, particularly software providers. So uh, for example of that, they will um, hack into these third party software provider servers that deliver updates to all the customers who have that software. And by doing so, they will actually send out malware together with those software updates so they can infect hundreds of clients at one time. A lot of these applications relate to uh, system cleanup, uh, such as those packages that eliminate unneeded files or applications that they clean up your systems and make more room, if you will, uh, and human resources software uh, that are primarily used by law firms, uh, tax accounting firms, and some other tax payment apps. So a lot going on in the nation state realm as well. That's great. All three of you, excellent points. And, and I think even on that point you mentioned there, Rich, about the attackers targeting um, third-party service providers, whether managed services, even managed security services, hosting providers, cloud providers, whatever the case may be. And you know, there was someone I was talking to gave the analogy that, you know, you, you've got all these um, crown jewels or targets that you can go after, pretty large targets. Would you rather hit the penthouse or if you could just hit the super's office and get the keys to every apartment in the, the apartment building. And that, that's the mindset. While Rich was, you know, mentioned in the DDoS attacks, think about, you know, the treasure chest. If you hit one of the major services providers and you know, we try to make it a public policy, not talking about companies that have been compromised in the news, but at the same time, I'd say over the last six plus months, the major service providers that have been uh, attacked and while we've helped some of them directly, um, we're, we're on retainer for a number of them. And even if you're not um, the target that's been hit, how do you know you're not being attacked? And we're going to talk about third-party service providers um, later in the program. But, you know, it goes back to that whole point of you can outsource the function, but you know who owns the risk when uh, that service provider is compromised and you know whose name is in the papers and so forth. Um, you know, bef before we jump back into ransomware, because that's something that is exacerbating the situation, not only the attacks on the third-party service providers, but putting the ransomware into effect and really shutting that down. And ultimately, um, it's not just your data being lost. If you're relying on that third-party service provider contingency plan and 101, um, one, one last one I wanted to talk about on fraud um, it was, you know, a big thing that we saw as much as we talked about, um, you know, fraudulent claims, whether it's wire fraud, whatever it may be, or even with a lot of the, re the relief checks, a big one that we saw, especially with uh, the state governments all over the news, uh, unemployment claims that were put out there. And as much as you could think of an individual putting in a fraudulent claim. We had an investigation where, um, won't say the specific state, 
but a state there was claims for hundreds of people that were put in from a from, that were residents of a state all the way across the country, only to find the people weren't putting complaints in because they were still employed. It was uh, traced back to an organized crime gang, and what they were actually doing was that they just went and grabbed anybody's identity and applied for unemployment. And in the meantime, the state entity was paying these claims. Um, when you point back to the banks that were cashing those checks, they came back and they're just like, well, they were state issue checks. So in the meantime, people are like, well, why didn't the victim complain? The victim didn't know that they had, they had applied for unemployment. So it was a, a really creative scheme that was put together. Those are the kind of things that are going on out there. And now when you couple it with, we're going to jump back to you, Rich, with, with ransomware, there's so much that's going on out there. And it's not just about locking the systems anymore and pay me and you can get your data back or get access to your systems. Things have really uh, exploded. And Rich, I, I'm sure you can give us uh, more war stories than we can handle, but if you could give us a, a, an overview, that would be great. Yeah, sure, Rocco. So, <clears throat> ransomware, as I mentioned, one of the biggest crime, crime problems, at least, that we're dealing with in cyber right now. Ransomware, uh, as we know, nothing new, uh, but some of the tactics and techniques that we're seeing being used by these groups uh, have changed. Um, and uh, they're obviously becoming a lot more brazen in, in these attacks. So one of the things that we're seeing across a number of ransomware groups uh, is a model that leverages what we call a double extortion, right? So um, instead of just encrypting your data and asking you to pay a ransom, uh, they are specifically targeting uh, certain firms as victims. They're gaining access and uh, moving through the network, gathering sensitive data and stealing it before the ransomware ever becomes known to the victim. Uh, and then upon uh, revealing the ransomware, you're now, um, as, a, as a criminal, asking for a demand for payment for the decryption of the data, but also you're asking for an extortion fee, essentially not to expose the sensitive data that they've stolen. So in essence, they're gonna guarantee uh, if you will, a payment from the victim in some form or fashion. This is a new business model that we've not seen much in the past, but as a result of that, the attacks are much more targeted. The demands for ransom are a lot higher than they used to be in the millions of dollars now. Um, but also the vector of entry uh, is changing. Uh, we still see ransomware infections uh, happening through traditional spear phishing emails where an employee clicks on an infected link or going to a website and downloading the ransomware unintentionally. But we're seeing a lot more of uh, attacks on what we call remote desktops. So these are certain ports that they find on your network without a user interacting at all. Uh, they actually find a way to brute force their way in. And once they get inside using remote desktop, uh, they can spread very easily throughout the network. Managed service providers, coincidentally, Rocco, um, is one of the targets lately of many of these ransomware groups because, as we said, if you can get onto a managed service provider's server, uh, you can easily spread to dozens of computers, maybe even different victims at one time. 
Uh, and instead of using the remote desktop service, they're using, it, it's a semantics, uh, matter of semantics, but remote management and monitoring tools that many of these MSPs uh, provide. So the bottom line to ransomware for anybody out there who's looking to protect is have backups of your critical systems because by having backups that, that work, um, you can essentially avoid uh, the crisis of the ransomware. Now the stolen data is a different issue. Um, but also making sure um, uh, that you not only have backups, but um, you should have uh, someone on standby who knows how to mitigate those systems quickly and know what you're going to do in terms of dealing with the demand for stolen data. You can't get data back even once you pay for it. And uh, even if you pay a $10 million ransom or extortion fee, you're, no, you're not guaranteed to get that data back or not have it exposed. So how are you going to counter that from a PR standpoint, a branding standpoint, uh, to mitigate the damage? Uh, some things for consideration. Uh, and I offer it to anybody else, but ransomware is something that we're dealing with two, three times a day right now. Rich, there, isn't there a code of honor or money back guarantee with these guys? Yeah, I wish there was. You sign a contract and it's all official, right? Uh, reality I, is, you pay a ransom. They, 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 they will occasionally um, decrypt your data. They will occasionally not post data as they promise. But the reality is, in many cases, we see them come back again and attack a second time because they know you pay. No, no yeah. doubt. I'd say that in jest, Rich. Go ahead, I Pete. I was just going to add to what Rich said, um, which is, yeah, over the past year, we've really seen the classic ransomware incident morph into what's what's now a, an actual data breach um, and and as as rich said now the the bad guys have two kind of points of pressure um, that just inc you know ratchet up the pressure on the company to pay um, and you know not only are you dealing with the encryption issue and dealing with your backups and you know potentially those backups are also encrypted but now on the legal side you've opened up a full breach notification analysis, depending on where that data is and what type of data it is. Yeah, I, I'll tell you, you know, some of the investigations we've had, um, you know, the, the piece that, you know, you really drove home there, Rich, this isn't something new. This isn't something that's new because of the pandemic. And, you know, while there's the ransomware payments that seem like they skyrocketed, and I've known Rich for a while, actually everybody, uh, uh, on this panel, and you know, had the you know the the fortune to uh, be able to work with each of you. But at the same time, you know, I, I walk a fine line. You know, as far as when you talk about the payments and so forth. Right now, it's a matter of getting your systems up or getting your data back. And obviously, you're not oh, you're not necessarily getting your data back. It's more that they're not going to expose it. We had one probably about three, four years ago, where a, a, a major provider had gotten locked down, they were being extorted. At the time, 500K was a lot. Uh, Rich had mentioned it's in the millions. It really is in the millions now. But if you go back about four years ago, won't share too much because you can reverse engineer who the victim was. Uh, they had brought us in for the investigation and they were being extorted that if they didn't pay the 500 grand, they were going to release all their information. Um, third party came in went in instead of the 500k and this so i'll walk the fine line with rich here but you know rich knows there's companies out there that pay um the net net they went out there with 20k 
posed as someone on the dark web looking to buy, um, you know, stolen data. And not only did they get a, a majority of the data, um, they were able to get access to see how much more they had. And for another 100K, they'd give them the whole amount. With the, um, the negotiator didn't so much go out there to get the data back as much as once it was identified that it was more or less the proverbial proof of life went back to the compromised service provider as soon as they saw that that was it they obviously knew they weren't buying the data they weren't going to get into a negotiation as to don't release my data you only to pay them and it gets released anyway so many different variables that come into it but as soon as they had the proverbial proof of life they called the regulators they notified the, the general public and things of that that nature so that was four years ago so everything that we're reading about in the papers isn't just happening in the last six months. Cyber extortion's been going on for a while. The piece that I think is really pushing this even further is now cyber insurance covers a lot of these claims. And, you know, Pete, I, I don't know if, um, you know, we've worked on some cases together. Do you have any thoughts there of what's really driving these numbers up? I think, uh, you know, I, I always remind uh, our clients who are victims that this is a business um, and, uh, you know, the, the bad guys want to get paid and the business model is working. Um, and, the, the, and, you know, this is one of those things to always remember, at, you know, first companies kind of figured out how to deal with a classic ransomware situation. You just had backups. The back, bad, bad guys realized you were doing that, and so they encrypted the backups. Now, over the past year, they're, they're actually stealing the data. They're, they're, as Rich said, they're spending time on the infrastructure. They're locating your most you know, sensitive customer data. They're exfiltrating it. Then they're uh, dropping the, the malware. So they always, you know, they, they always catch up, and, and where they're going to go next is, is hard to, to figure out. But um, it's working. If it, if it wasn't working, these numbers wouldn't be um, – it wouldn't be increasing. But you, you mentioned insurance, and I should just say that that, that is um, increasingly important. It's one of the first, we're gonna talk later about who to call, um, you know, the Sunday afternoon you realize you're under attack, which is usually when it comes in. Um, insurance companies, uh, your insurance policy, under understanding what it says, what requirements um, you need to follow uh, in an attack is really, really important. Oh, sorry, I'm just going to say this is this would be a real good time to talk about that OFAC advisory, but I'll leave it up to you. <laughs> Go ahead, Kyle. Yeah, give us your Pete. I know uh, Pete's going to hit us out of the park there. We lose you there, Costas. Yeah, before we get into OFAC, and, and maybe I'll. I think we're breaking up there a little bit, Costas. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to you, but you know, you with, with all these different things, we, we have you now, Costas. Go ahead. Yeah, you now. Yep. Can you hear me now? Yes. Yep. We have you, Costas. Contingency okay, planning. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. It's, uh, it's one of the, I think, uh, after effects of the pandemic and having everyone overload the circuits on every single telecom provider. One of the early learnings uh, we saw coming out of China. And uh, I think the last mile 
uh, as you can see, even in this presentation, continues, to, uh, I think, to vex individuals that are on conference calls and trying to conduct business. But as I heard uh, the conversation, um, you know, there are a couple of things I, I think organizations can take away uh, from this discussion to be better prepared to address ransomware. Um, and it's in no particular order, but something that I think is effective in trying to mitigate that risk that we continue uh, to address. A lot of the incidents uh, that we're seeing, uh, particularly in supply chain and that you're reading about uh, in the use uh, could be addressed in organizations that are more than likely mid or larger. I think smaller organizations have a significant hurdle uh, to overcome. They can't afford typically advanced threat protection capabilities. They can't even afford managed security services, but in many cases uh, tend to provide some pretty important support as a third party uh, to organizations. So that is a very real uh, threat, but there are things even they can do. Uh, for example, uh, multi-factor authentication is probably one of the most effective ways that you can combat the rapid disbursement uh, and compromise of credentials, whether they're done through phishing campaigns in the past or phishing campaigns that are being targeted. And multi-factor authentication, not just for remote access, but for your internal systems, for third parties and remote access, I think is a very effective uh, mitigation uh, tactic. I think the logging and monitoring uh, that goes along with that uh, can go a long way, especially if you are monitoring for identity compromise. It is something that can give you an early warning. You can see quite a bit of information, particularly from locations that accounts may have been compromised and attempt uh, to be exploited. Uh, for example, um, I mentioned advanced persistent threat. You absolutely have to have today something in addition uh, to antivirus. Uh, antivirus is no longer as effective as it used to be. Um, I think uh, your monitoring strategy absolutely needs to include SSL decryption of all traffic inside your network, certainly traffic that's exiting your network, and you have to have a fairly aggressive posture uh, across your technical stack, and you need to know uh, that the control points for email are different than your internet browsing, they're different uh, than accessing your systems, they're different when you're updating software, some of the examples uh, that have been given, for example, you absolutely have to have uh, a state-of-the-art incident response and forensics program or a partner like Rocco uh, to help you in the event uh, that you come uh, into an area or a Peter uh, from a legal perspective. So you can call him 24-7, not necessarily only uh, on Sundays and certainly uh, if timing permits and it is appropriate to reach out to a rich uh, for law enforcement engagement, depending on what you've identified as a threat actor. I think the other piece uh, that we find very effective is having a recovery uh, and a, zero, a resilience plan that you regularly test. Uh, you are not as prepared as you typically think and I can reach back to my early days in IT when I was just a normal IT technician working on BCP and DR plans for one of the smaller regional banks I started in my career. And the learnings uh, from that experience is something that I carry even today as a chief information security officer in one of the largest companies in the world. You have to do tabletops, you have to practice your BCP, you must be prepared for people not being available for systems, regions, countries, 
environments to be taken down and you have to have the ability uh, to recover. And the only way uh, that you can do that is if you test your scenarios. Lastly, I think, you know, we've, we often talk about uh, third parties. Your commercial contracts, uh, those of you that are in the Boston Bar Association and, and listening as attorneys, uh, one of the biggest advices I can give you is reach back into your clients, ask them uh, to be able to provide some help and support in reviewing their commercial terms. Do they have information security as a priority with that supplier? Do they have privacy requirements uh, in there? Are they requesting, uh, for example, artifacts uh, when they're being provided software development services or operational support? Is there even a requirement for notification? And is that actually enforced? And more important, do you test that uh, with those critical suppliers? And again, risk prioritize uh, that work with your clients. So I know I've said a lot, uh, Rocco, but I want to make sure that uh, the folks that are joining us here come away with some real uh, follow-up actions that they can do. And certainly ransomware is one of many threats uh, that we face in the private sector. Um, I'll leave you with this on the OFAC. Uh, to me, I, I read it. I saw it. Um, our own legal uh, team sent that out. I don't really see anything net new there. Uh, you're not supposed to be dealing with uh, organizations or individuals that are sanctioned. Banks have programs in there. I ran some of those programs uh, in some of the largest banks in the world. I think it's a reminder uh, for organizations, if you are caught uh, unprepared, uh, be responsible and understand there are other legal provisions that can be enforced uh, when dealing with that type of malicious actor. Back to... Thanks, Mr. Costas. Thanks for teeing us up to a very timely topic that we, you know, obviously goes hand in hand with ransomware. How many times has OFAC been said since uh, last Thursday, October one, when that advisory came out? And you know, given that we we didn't plan this uh, session because we knew that was coming out on October first, but given the bar association, I know we have a host of different attorneys here. Not going to put Pete on the hotspot, but we do have Pete with the legal profession, and we've got uh, obviously Rich from the FBI with the law enforcement side of things. Um, you know, we we've talked about all the ins and outs of ransomware. Now all of a sudden, you know, the U.S. Treasury puts out this advisory alert, and I think Rich had said, you know, this isn't something new. Or Costas, you followed up, Pete, counselor, yeah. tell us about it. What, what's your spin on things? Right, so it, so it is nothing new. And let's just back up and provide a little bit of background. One of the first questions that um, I get when, um, you know, I'm on the first or second call during a ransomware incident is, is it legal to play, pay ransom? Is, is it, is it uh, by law expressly prohibited? Um, the, the answer is no in the U.S. There's, there's not a, um, a law on the books that I'm aware of that expressly prohibits ransomware when there's no sanctions nexus um, at play. Um, and I don't want to speak for Rich, um, but you know, in my experience uh, working with law enforcement uh, on a very regular basis, uh, its perspective really has um, evolved, I, I would say, over the past three or four years. I'm gauging Rich's re reaction in real time here to that. Um, I, my my experience is that um, law enforcement treats victim companies as victims. Um, 
you know, prior to the advisory's um, enforcement uh, of ransom payments was uh, very limited. And um, I agree that the, the advisories, it was two advisories, um, are a reminder of the potential for enforcement. Um, but it is nothing new. And, and the reason you worry about this is, is under the sanctions regimes, um, uh, liability is, is strict. So a, a company found to be in violation um, uh, doesn't have to have a, a knowledge component. So even if you didn't know that, that the recipient of a payment was on a sanctions list or couldn't have you know, reason to know, uh, you would be held strictly liable. Um, and so some level of due diligence has always been prudent before uh, making a payment. Um, and, you know, by, by due diligence, what we're talking about is determining the identity of the threat actor um, who would be the recipient of a payment. And that is really uh, challenging because of the inherent uh, challenge of, of attribution in cyberspace. It, it is not like a, a case where a threat actor has uh, broken into your headquarters building and, and left a bunch of uh, evidence. It's very difficult, very difficult to determine um, who is behind many of these attacks. So there were two advisories, um, both uh, reminded folks that uh, ransom payments are, you know, threaten US national security interests. They both mentioned that. The OFAC advisory, so the Office of Foreign Asset Control um, at Treasury, um, again, reminded uh, companies that, um, you know, liability is possible. Um, but it did say, interestingly, that uh, it suggested that enforcement uh, may be less likely if certain what are called mitigating factors were uh, in place. And uh, those included making a timely, I believe it's a timely and complete report to law enforcement and um, a full and timely cooperation with law enforcement during and after the event. So a company that does both of those things the uh, advisory suggests um, the enforcement of the, the, the payment, whether or not uh, the company would be uh, um, brought to bear, they would weigh that in mind. The other was the, the FinCEN guidance. Um, this was really more for financial institutions and other uh, what they call facilitators of ransom payments. So that would include um, forensic companies that uh, there are groups of companies out there that, that really just focus on helping uh, clients negotiate with threat actors, procure cryptocurrency, make uh, the payment, um, and insurance companies. Those companies um, you know, potentially could be considered uh, money transmitters, the, the advisory says. And uh, if they are, there are all sorts of rules, Bank uh, Secrecy Act rules, other FinCEN rules that potentially would apply to them. So that's just kind of a bit of background on legal versus not and what these two advisories just said. And if I could jump on, uh, uh, jump on that Definitely point. Rich. So we have said consistently, even prior to this advisory, that we uh, do not condone paying ransoms uh, for a whole host of reasons. One of which is, uh, and I think it was Pete who said it earlier, ransomware has become so common because they are making money doing it. And they're making money because too many victims are paying the ransom. It's a problem, right? So the OFAC advisory uh, is very consistent with the message that we've been delivering. That said, I, I want to be clear also that um, the OFAC advisory and any penalties that may come from that um, 
actually will be coming from the Treasury. It does not come from the FBI conducting a criminal investigation against you if you pay the ransom. We are still um, of the mindset that we are going after the actors and looking at you as a victim, not subsequently as someone who violated a law. So that is going to be a Treasury penalty, not an FBI-related event. And I think it helps to clarify that, even though we think the message of that advisory is consistent with ours. Yeah, and, and maybe I can comment uh, because I think this is an area where my previous experience with uh, a lot of your uh, former colleagues or current colleagues, Rich and, and Peter, uh, in the agencies, I, I think uh, is very important, especially for this audience. I, I think the messaging that I saw from OFAC was troubling for a number of reasons. One, not because there was really nothing new, it was a shot over the bow, I think, about public-private partnerships and the extent of which that is likely going to send a very chilling effect. I think on efforts uh, that DHS, FBI, the NSA, and many, many other organizations, the SEC and others uh, in the U.S. and literally around the world uh, with partner uh, agencies have been trying now for the last 15, 20 years uh, to get in place. And, and I think when, when I look at it from that prism and certainly from my experience at NASDAQ, uh, for example, um, to me, it's very clear that the government's role and responsibility in these attacks uh, is to address the criminal actors. Uh, it is certainly not intended, uh, and nor have I ever seen, in my experience uh, over 30 years, a government agency come in and help you do your IR forensics on your recovery uh, processes inside your organization. Uh, I will tell you that it is a very very sensitive area. I can recall speaking to the FSISAC during my tenure uh, at NASDAQ and everyone wanted to know uh, what was happening given the importance and the critical infrastructure that organization ran and continues to run for the country and the world. Um, and I remember feeling very alone, although I had dozens uh, of agencies that I cannot name uh, even to this date uh, for lots of reasons, um, and really left to address a significant attack uh, on the organization uh, with the resources that we had at the time, and we were uh, very successful uh, doing that. So I, I would really, uh, again, uh, look at the Boston Bar Association, look at that uh, message. I would come back to the intelligence agencies I would come back to the U.S. government uh, and I would ask him for clarity because this is, I, I think, very damaging the credibility of what's being done uh, across ISACs in many dis, uh, different industries, retail, defense ISAC, uh, financial uh, ISAC, you name it. Um, and I think that is something, uh, Rich, that we can certainly use your help as an advocate uh, if the government is going to continue uh, to look at companies as victims, uh, uh, for example, and try to support that. Sure. Great points, the three of you. And I, I think on that front, the, the key message I'll take as much as I've known these three gentlemen for a good part of my career, cost us the longest, but you know, I've been fortunate to be partnered with government agencies, especially through Rich's partnership. And you know, a lot of times there's the idea, you know, I, I'm glad Rich gave some clarity on it, that it's the Treasury Department 
the FBI, Secret Service, in my experience and in investigations, it's not like they're looking to come in and uh, take your information and go do a press release. They're there, they're there to help you, but even more so, they want to go after the attacker. They're looking for criminal prosecution. The last thing they want to do is come after the victim. The victim is someone that, that can help. So um, I know we touched on this topic lightly um, and a lot of great points, you know, especially Pete and um, Rich, but no, no, no doubt there's going to be a lot more to come on this. And even now, as we look at you know, some of the investigations, you know, some that I'm involved directly, uh, you just look at the ins and outs of you know, the way that companies are just jumping in and paying. Um, I know uh, we're, we're going to talk a little bit about what can we do to be better prepared. Um, but just back on the whole payment piece, if you read that advisory, if you're an attorney or you're not an attorney, reach out to outside counsel, reach out to your in-house counsel, get an interpretation of it. Um, I don't want to say that it's easy, but it's, you know, state's something that we've already known. There's the OFAC nation and so forth, prohibited payments. You can read the fine line. If you want some of the FAQs or the actual advisory itself, reach out. I'm happy to send it. You can Google it and find it. But the big piece, whether or not that advisory is out there, you're dealing with cyber criminals. And my feeling is, you're dealing with cyber criminals. You don't know where they are geographically, countries across the globe. So the first thing is internet crime, cyber attackers, it goes international real fast, whether it's a crime or not, or the regulatory side, there's a lot of privacy. There's a lot of laws and regulations. You need someone like Pete. You need counsel that is experienced, not just in-house that, okay, we, we've got a general counsel of privacy. Someone experienced in this, Likewise, if you are going down that route, you're dealing with criminals. Why wouldn't you talk to law enforcement? If you've got a kidnapping, if your house gets broken into, your bank account, thousands of dollars are stolen or something of um, you know, value is taken, for, you're going to call law enforcement. This is the same thing. And you know, sometimes maybe it's called belt and suspenders, bringing outside counsel in. But people that do this every day, those are the people you want to be talking to. So I know we, we've talked about the sky falling and doom and gloom and all these bad things. Um, we want to jump into um, an area of, you know, the, I said earlier, my career has spanned from IT security to cyber um, security to cyber resilience. Uh, we want to jump into cyber resilience with all these things that are going on and evolving. What are some of the things that we can do? And before I throw back to you, Costas, I know you touched on a lot of these. I'd like to throw six in a box some free consultant. One, do you have outside counsel on retainer? Two, do you have forensics on retainer? Crisis communications, you know, people that put out those notifications that we're reading about in the papers that come out on a Monday morning or over a weekend. Uh, people aren't just writing those on the fly. A lot of times there's third parties. Cyber insurance, how many people right now know that uh, what the time limit is that they need to contact their cyber insurers? Is it 72 business hours? Is it um, two weeks? Is it immediately? Are they the first people? Can't tell you how many investigations we've been in. Go through the fire for days, weeks. Everybody gives each other a pat on the back only to find they go to sit in a submit a claim. And um, the victim, the victim company gets a letter that says not only are they denying the claim, they get a letter that they're in breach of contract, that they never notify them. That's when they, you know, call, call in your counsel again to come in. But that was for notification companies, those people that do send out the letters and uh, credit monitoring. 
law enforcement, um, Rich, please don't take this the wrong way, but if you're in the middle of a fire and um, and a crime scene, going FBI.gov isn't the way to get a hold of somebody like Rich. Plan that in advance and have all these different pieces in place. Not that Rich is going to be your incident response team, but send in an email to FBI.gov. Don't sit by the phone on a Saturday afternoon waiting for a call back immediately. And it said six in a box, but we're going to get into resiliency. The seventh one that you can throw that out the window, six in a box. Are you in a position that you can make a payment if you have to? And again, Rich, walking the fine line, choosing my words judiciously, not advocating the pay. But if you find yourself in a situation, are you in, are you set up that you can move forward and have your executives or board ready to make that kind of decision? Costas, if you can bring us back with some of those points, that would be great. Yeah, I think, thank you, Rocco. I, I, I think, look, it goes back uh, to uh, your enterprise uh, strategy as a company in terms of how you're going to deal with a variety of threats. And again, ransomware is one type uh, of threat, but a pretty important one and one that's uh, typically on top of mind uh, for board of directors. And certainly if you read the headlines today, uh, it's at the top of mind of every executive uh, in many, many different organizations. I Again, I reflect back on just some of the public information. There's over $150 million that has been paid on ransomware uh, attacks this year alone. And the number is likely to double by the end of this year. And there's only a few months left uh, in that. Not only are, are they getting paid, uh, but uh, there are wide array uh, of targets. Uh, many, many municipal uh, governments are being attacked, uh, law enforcement itself, legal firms, private entities. Uh, and I think when you add the layer of the pandemic, uh, certainly businesses are coming under unprecedented, I think, pressures. Uh, pressures to stay in business, pressure to ensure that their uh, safety and health of their employees remain and that they continue to operate remotely uh, in many cases or with very significant uh, reduction in staff inside their uh, corporate locations. So in this chaos, um, it is even more important to dust off those BCP plans, your DR plans. It is critical uh, for you to continue to execute your tabletop exercises, particularly as you're seeing the threat landscape evolve into something very uh, dangerous like ransomware, your door is almost immediately uh, given you don't have adequate resources available, given that you can't even fly uh, people across the country or in many cases across the globe uh, when needed, uh, for example. So I, I think going back, having that conversation with your board, making sure the executive team is aligned, making sure your tabletops are very clear in terms of the scenarios, and that includes everything from reaching out uh, to Peter and Rich to your internal uh, communications with employees. That is a vital component to ensure that there is no panic inside the organization. If you uh, encounter such a scenario, reaching out externally, not only uh, to the media, but your suppliers. Um, again, understanding how you can recover under what duration any part of your organization can be down and how you're going to address your customers uh, and your consumers. And again, I, I reflect back on my days of NASDAQ, I was on the phone reaching out and speaking to CEOs 
and boards for months uh, at a time, reassuring them uh, that we had uh, the compromise under attack, that in fact, uh, we had mitigated the risk and there was no issue uh, whatsoever that we had not addressed. And even with that, uh, it took over a year to really put a bow tie on it and move on from that event. So this is a, an environment uh, where testing, validation, continuous evolution of the threats force uh, for any business, any size business, including the law firms that are on this call, uh, highly targeted. Uh, one of the biggest concerns I have uh, as an executive uh, is around M&A activity, is the relationships we have with the legal entities around the world. And we know they're being targeted. You can read the headlines. Uh, they do hold a ton of the crown jewel information and are actively working on new crown jewels that you're looking to acquire or potentially even divest in business dealings. And again, in the day of COVID, where you can absolutely depend on one thing, the industry is not only changing, it is going to rapidly evolve. Uh, deals such as M&A activity is going to be something uh, that everyone should be very, very concerned about, uh, which makes, again, that third-party risk even more important uh, for you in your uh, tabletop exercises. Yeah, and can I just add, maybe uh, add to that? Um, Rocco, yeah, and Costas couldn't agree more. And w one of the things that we recommend is practice like you play, right? So uh, have these tabletops, but do it thoughtfully. Include the right level of people in a real incident. If, if this happened to your company tomorrow, um, it's going to be escalated, I would guess, to the senior most people of the, of the organization, the board of directors. Um, if those individuals, the general counsel, others, if they're not familiar with the incident response plan and escalation protocols and their role in it and the, you know, some decisions they may have to make or questions they may need to address in the first, you know, 12, 24, 36 hours, um, that isn't going to go uh, uh, very well. So include uh, those folks in, uh, in your tabletop exercise. And, and I would argue uh, also include the outside uh, experts who you would inevitably be bringing in uh, during a real incident. So that includes outside counsel for purposes of privilege. That includes a forensic slash uh, incident response uh, supplier. Uh, lately, we've been uh, helping facilitate tabletops with a third party, which is, um, I mentioned earlier, there are separate companies that really do nothing but uh, facilitate ransomware uh, incidents. So they're the ones that uh, take over uh, negotiation with the threat actors, the, 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 the communications, um, they'll procure the Bitcoin, etc. Um, potentially uh, a media relations uh, uh, supplier. Include the people who would be uh, there during a real incident. And um, I, I'd also challenge folks to make the uh, scenario uh, difficult enough um, it, it's kind of like fishing exercises. When somebody tells me that they've, they're very proud that they have a 2% clicking rate on their fishing campaign, I say your test isn't hard enough. So um, just Rocco, maybe back to you, but just some thoughts. Yeah, no, uh, great points. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw a, a hot potato to both of you in a second, but on the idea of that um, tabletop um, you know, the, the whole idea, I, I think companies have come a long way with the planning. On the official one, feet real quick, I'm going to just say, 
we, we do fishing exercises on a regular basis. There was a pretty well-known fortune, I'll say 300 retailer. And we did a fishing attack for them. We targeted 100 people. Now that's like the board had us come in to do it. They've rolled their eyes and they say, we do about a half dozen to a dozen of these a year. Go ahead, knock yourself out. Out of the 100 people, I know I, I, we can't do a poll on question here. Um, I typically ask how many do you think fell for it? And people say more than half, 90%, whatever it is. It was over, and this is true story, over 500 hits we got on it. We did a friends and family, 24 hours only, uh, employees only. Don't give this to your friends. Don't pass this out. The majority of the people clicked on it. They passed it out to other employees. I don't know how many we got all together, but for that company, over 500 hits. And it's the Achilles heel of any company security program. But back on the tabletop planning, Five years ago, if we asked the attendees here, how many of you have been in a tabletop exercise? Not too many hands, maybe half tops would go up. Three years ago, probably a lot more are going up. Today, most are going up. You ask if they, their executive team has been involved with a tabletop exercise. A lot of hands still going up. Ours, we can't get our CEO. Sometimes the GC will show up or they'll send the privacy attorney. But I'll ask the question, how many of you have run tabletop exercises? with your board of directors. And if you look at some of the things that drive in, I hate to say regulatory, 2011, the SEC put out, you know, the notification you have to, um, you, you have to document this in your 10K reports, any material breaches. Then 2018, they sharpened it. We won't talk about the attack that drove that even further, but making sure board members are in tune to What's going on, not only on the cyber matters, your most critical assets, but at the same time, trading of stock or things of that nature, you can Google, you probably know what I'm talking about right now, especially the attorney. But further to that, the companies that are doing it the right way, yes, they want to be in compliance. Yes, your board of directors have the fiduciary responsibilities. But to your point, Pete, there's a lot of planning that's going on, a lot of decisions, especially if things are going public, if things are going to be affecting regulators, the last place you want your board to find out that you're, you have a, an attack going on or you have a compromise going on is in the news or reading the papers. Go back to what their role is. They have the fiduciary responsibility to safeguard the assets of the company. Um, it, it would behoove you if you're not doing tabletop exercises, or I should say if you're doing tabletop exercises and not including board members or doing them for them specifically, no, it's hard to get their time, but have them go through it. It will benefit everyone across the board. I guarantee you. I'm, I'm, Pete, uh, I'm, Rich, I know you had a quick point there. Yeah, I just want to point out before you get to an exercise, I think it's important that you take a look at your response plan, your BCP, to make sure that all of it is still valid. And the reason I, I say that is because many companies now following COVID are are learning that some of their disaster recovery, their incident response, the planning is, is not designed for thousands of people working from home. And for some companies, that's going to be a permanent thing, right? So you may actually have to update and change your incident response plan. How do you respond to 100 people at home that have been targeted as opposed to a single part of your office? Um, so before you think about exercising, make sure that your plans are up to date, reflecting the current environment, and then you test that plan. 
because COVID really, for a lot of companies, changed everything. It just, some of the plans were just not applicable in, in the case of COVID. It was not expected. And, and they're finding themselves in a position where they're having trouble following the plan with such a remote workforce. Yeah, Rich, I, I couldn't point. agree more. I mean, that, that just goes to the, the notion that I, I like to call incident response plans living documents. And you do have to regularly update it for just the new realities that are uh, you know, presented to us like COVID, but also learn from other people's mistakes. So um, Rocco, you mentioned a fairly famous incident that happened a few years ago where a, an executive sold some stock in the company. Um, before that, a lot of companies had not considered that in the context of a cybersecurity incident. So um, in that case where uh, it was a, an internally discovered incident, a major incident, wasn't public yet, knowledge of the breach was, um, you know, arguably material non-public information, um, closing the trading window uh, is now, you know, should be one of the items in your incident response checklist. Um, and so that's a, that's one of my favorite examples of just uh, viewing your plan as a living document. Yeah. And, and Peter, what, no, I, no doubt, Peter. There, uh, what I would add there uh, to the points that you and Rich made is the threat landscape continues to evolve and how you prioritize that uh, exercise and the individuals that you do that exercise with, uh, with uh, varies uh, depending on what you're seeing, uh, for example. So absolutely correct. Get the right executives, get the right internal teams uh, in place. In fact, I would tell you draft uh, communications and communications are going to be different depending on what part of the world your businesses are in, the languages uh, that they're in, your customers uh, that you're going to deal. So it's pretty complicated. Um, and again, something, as you correctly point out, a living document that should evolve as the threat landscape uh, changes over time, as should your response in your security program, uh, given the threats that are coming at us at a incredible pace at this point. Three perpetual things, cut. Technology continues to evolve, including in COVID, how many people have accelerated their digital transformation. Um, the sophistication of, in attacks, you, know, you, you don't have to look any further than the front page. And then the regulatory landscape, all three of those need to be fed back in. But one of the things we see so often, whether it's an actual um, cyber attack investigation, a tabletop, or just some of the, one of the three things I just mentioned, nobody's happy to go through an investigation. Nobody's happy with the findings. You want to get through it. You want long hours, stress, everybody on edge, get back. Everybody wants to get back to normal business operations. That, that final piece of your incident response plan, back to Pete's point, live and breathe and document. Everyone likes to give the pat on the back of what went well. What didn't go well? Nobody likes to shine the light on things where we may be deficient, but that needs to be fed into that live and document. Pete, you said we, we play like we practice. You don't pick the, day, the team the day of the game. You don't build the plane when you're in there. All those things come out in a tabletop exercise. So don't feel bad if you go through one and there's gaps. Um, there's a lot of moving parts, a lot of parallel efforts, and one that I want to throw to Rich and Pete right now. When there's an attack, who should companies call first? Rich, why don't you tell us? Uh, I, I don't know. First, second, third doesn't really matter. I mean, I, if it were me, to be quite honest, and I'm dealing with a crisis, I want to get it under control. So in addition to making sure that, you know, the leaders of the firm know what's going on, 
I probably want to make sure I've got the right team in there that's, that's handling mitigation of the attack. Uh, sometime shortly thereafter that, though, I am making a call to either the FBI or some other law enforcement agency that you have a relationship with, because the reality is um, we can assist in terms of having intel regarding that actor group that we might be able to share with your forensics team to help navigate them in certain areas of the network. Uh, and we're also active going after the bad guys. So by taking those guys off the street, we are effectively effectively dismantling that criminal operation, preventing future attacks. We're all part of the same team, if you think about it that way. Uh, it is an important call to make. Whether we're first, second, third, doesn't really matter, right? But it should be early on uh, after you realize you've been attacked. I'll, I'll be sure. a bit less diplomatic than Rich. Uh, call me first. Uh, uh, and then we'll call Rich together. Um, no, I, 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 I do think, though, that, that in all seriousness, both the I internal legal function I talk to a lot of clients about is, is so um, vital in this situation. You really do realize those of us that have gone through some of the big ones um, know that, you know, in that first 24 hours, 72 hours, some of the most difficult consequential decisions are going to be made um, by the general counsel or, or by the CEO, you know, with the advice of the general counsel, um, not necessarily by just the technology function. So having, having a strong relationship between the company's legal function and its chief information uh, security officer and his or her organization is absolutely critical. Um, you do want to bring in law, uh, uh, sorry, uh, outside counsel um, uh, as quickly as possible. And, and in fact, knowing how to do so is just one of those very basic things that unfortunately companies uh, get wrong. Um, we're, we're all living in a virtual environment. So one of the first things I do with clients is uh, have them put my personal cell phone number in theirs. Uh, I fully expect to get the phone call on Friday afternoon or Sunday morning. Um, I often do. Um, but it, and I have them print out their incident response plan because, um, you know, identifying those key individuals, the, the key stakeholders, you could call it a cyber SWAT team, you could call it whatever you want, but knowing uh, who to call is important, but knowing how to get in touch with them in a crisis is also really important. Yeah, I, I, I agree, Peter. Right. And, and again, I think when you look at incident response, you separate the forensics work that's typically done by the security organization, very technical in nature, versus the team that's composed and comprise of different functions within a company. And certainly uh, legal is a key stakeholder. Corporate communications is another key stakeholder, as is HR, as you're dealing uh, with an issue and depending on what the investigation comes. One of the things um, I, I think that plays into who you're going to call first is really how uh, the event unfolds. Uh, in case of ransomware, you're gonna have some very quick decisions to make and escalation is gonna be fairly rapid. Um, in other cases, uh, for example, um, you know, there's going to be times where over a period of 24, 48 hours, if not minutes or hours, uh, the information that you have and the assessment that you're doing changes uh, your thinking, changes your approach, changes what you want to communicate. Uh, and I think more often than not, what I have seen in tabletops or in real incidents, uh, including the one at, at NASDAQ, people jump to conclusions before really understanding what's actually taking place. So there's gotta be a bit of caution there. 
uh, I think as you're going through any type of incident um, and certainly uh, understanding what's unfolding before you uh, is critical. So I, I think timing, legal, regulatory perspective is definitely in consideration, especially if you're an international company uh, or if you're in some particular states in the U.S. that have very tight uh, deadlines uh, around the type and data uh, which may potentially be exposed. But you have to really give your forensics team and your organization an opportunity to really understand what is actually happening in the environment because the last thing you want is to go out, release information either internally or externally that could actually uh, damage that and actually make Rich's uh, job and Peter's much more uh, important. I'll, I'll tell you this on every single item I can recall, uh, confidential and attorney-client privilege is at the top of every single email uh, that goes out. And I'll just leave you with this additional point. Not everyone in the company, not everyone in the executive team, not everyone on the board, not everyone needs to be updated and informed. There's got to be some corporate due diligence in that process and a very, very focused conversation for lots of reasons uh, for the company, for the executive team and the board. I couldn't agree more hey, with that. I was going to... I was going to say, Pete, we just had a question come in that's going to tee up one right up your alley. And the question was, you know, on the heels of what you were talking about, Costas, you know, you're talking privilege and confidentiality. The question is, what are the triggers to get legal involved? And I think you heard some of the things that Costas just mentioned, but I'm going to throw to Pete because there's something right now that happened recently. You know, the whole idea of privilege, especially for firms like Hours myself as an incident responder, a lot of times we're engaged by the CISOs directly. And, you know, what Pete's going to share shortly, you know, just reinforces the point more and more it's a joint um, engagement or um, retained by counsel and the CISO, or in some instances directly with counsel. Pete, if you can, you know, not only on yeah. that question that was asked when to bring legal, but just the big picture of what I'm talking about that's going on in the industry, that'd be great. Sure, yeah, and just to, to add one thing to Costas's really good comment, um, you, you know, is you asked who to call, um, who not to call is also an important question to ask because we've all been, look, cyber is just like any other crisis, and we've all been on calls where um, you get on and there's 50 people in the room or on the phone and nothing gets accomplished. I think um, in these situations, identifying the key people, the key roles, and, and Costa said it, the, the chief information security officer, the legal function, the privacy function, media relations, communications, HR, et cetera, you know, one person and, and know how to get in touch with them and know who their backups are and how to get in touch with that person. Expect Costas to be on, well, not these days, but, you know, in normal times, expect him to be on an 18-hour flight across the world because that's when these things happen. That's when they're discovered. Um, um, you know, have discipline around that. And one of the reasons to bring in legal is just to um, enforce some uh, discipline around communications for, for a couple reasons. Um, again, uh, you know, people just by their nature want to be helpful. These are crisis situations. Um, what you want to avoid is, you know, the, the email that says, you know, I told you we should have 
fix this six months ago. You know, that, that type of thing is really unhelpful down the road um, if you face litigation. So, um, you know, marking documents and communications properly, very important. Um, it, the, the question was about when is the trigger? I, I think you kind of know it when you see it. Um, and that's kind of a cop-out answer. What, what I don't think legal should do is uh, get in the way. So as, as, as Costa says, there are lots of different types of cybersecurity incidents. If it's a ransomware incident, you're gonna know it right away and, and escalation should be immediate. Um, but there are lots of times um, where I, I'm sure Costas's company gets attacked uh, every minute of every day, just like every other big, big company. Um, it, 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 I don't think injecting legal into certainly every single uh, incident is necessary. I think they would just get in the way. But having a protocol that's clear and that's understood in an incident response plan that says, okay, if a, um, and every company does this differently, but if, if an event reaches a certain level of severity and that's defined, that's when the legal function needs to be brought in. Uh, Peter, I'll go one better than that. I, I think I, I, I can't agree with you in terms of legal engagement in our, our own internal process. And, and again, I, I'm trying to sort of thread the needle here. Um, information security it has a tremendous partnership with legal. There is no incident, whether it's low, medium, high, or critical, whatever rating you want to add to it, uh, that legal is not part of the incident response process that we have in the company, and that includes uh, HR, and that's by design. Uh, and again, I think it goes back to the earlier comment that I made. You don't know how these incidents will unfold. Hopefully, it'll be nothing major, and there's nothing for us uh, to be really concerned about. But in those limited cases where you absolutely need to have that rigor and that discipline, um, I would tell you having that continuous uh, engagement is very helpful uh, when you're running to a crisis. So again, um, very good points. Uh, I would tell uh, the team here that's on here, go back to your clients, look at their offer to look at their incident response plans. If they have one, uh, offer to provide some uh, opinions, some guidance uh, in terms of how they can respond and then encourage them uh, to engage you in a tabletop exercise. I think those are all insightful uh, opportunities and things that can help an organization become better over time. Great point. Pete, if you could wrap us up on this point, not so much wrap up the whole idea of, you know, when you engage a firm to conduct the investigation and that proverbial, how would you say, smoke and gun, that report that, yeah. you know, in most instances they're privileged, but there's been a lot of discussion that's been going on in the industry um, even for myself, trying to push the CISOs that we work with, get the legal involved, get that report privileged. Uh, can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, so you're, you're talking about the Capital One decision that came out earlier um, this year where the court um, <clears throat> looked at the uh, incident report that came out of that uh, large attack last year and said it was not uh, uh, protected by attorney client privilege. It looked at a number of factors and I, I, don't, I don't think that we can draw um, in a complete lessons learned from one decision, um, but it really looked at things like, uh, in that case, uh, I believe it was Mandiant was, was the company that was used and 
um, the court looked at the fact that uh, Capital One already had an existing uh, relationship with Mandiant, that it was their go-to firm. Um, there was already an MSA in place and a statement of work. Um, the, the budget for it came out of the, the, the CISO's organization as opposed to legal. Um, all, all different things. And, and, and you know, again, in that case, concluded that it wasn't uh, protected by attorney-client privilege. Lots of things that were, you know, we're helping uh, clients think through uh, in the aftermath of that, in, in, including um, do, do you, uh, some companies ask, you know, sh should I put a relationship in place, a, a, an agreement in place with uh, a company that I'm never going to use except in a crisis? I personally think that's a horrible idea. I'd be interested in Cost Costas's uh, opinion on that. Um, uh, but, you know, I think you have to be realistic. There is, there's always that potential litigation risk. Um, but I think um, you also want to use the company that knows your organization um, that you're familiar with. And so I, I actually don't think that that's um, the right decision. But I, there are a lot of um, ways that you can paper the engagement um, to be careful and, and to, um, to take into account some of the, the lessons learned from Capital One. No doubt, the current I, I, I state would, of affairs add, keeping you busy. Yeah, sorry, I would add less is more. I, and I think um, I'd be remiss if we uh, left this group of lawyers uh, and firms that are on the call, if we didn't stress the importance, especially uh, during an incident. Less is more uh, in, uh, in times of crisis and making sure that that is well understood and practiced. Uh, both in, by the way, not only in email uh, hygiene, but also in writing uh, and people taking notes and sharing that around an organization. Very, very important and vital, uh, I think. And again, this goes back to my earlier uh, experience at ASDAQ and some of the financial institutions uh, and some of those uh, incidents I've had to, uh, to address. Good stuff, Kathis. I know we're coming up at our time. I want to leave some time for questions, but I um, want to go through, you know, Rich with, you know, you and Pete and Casas, if you could give us uh, a quick point as to, you know, a lot going on out there, no doubt. Um, where do we go from here, whether it's the ransomware attacks evolving, the sophistication in attacks, um, this pandemic, nobody could predict where we were going to be here, digital transformation accelerated. If you can uh, kick us off there, Rich, that'd be great. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it's been said, but to, to summarize sort of where I see things, um, making sure you're practicing very basic cyber hygiene, some of it we talked about, multi-factor authentication, patching, you know, antivirus, although it's limited, making sure you have it, and making sure your policies are uh, up to date and that you're working on a plan to test them. In addition to that, relationships are key, and it's about a Establishing those relationships now in, you know, so-called peacetime, right, before you have an incident and knowing this, you don't want to have to find the right firm, find the right people, find the right law enforcement agency. You want to have all those folks on speed dial. So take the time to get to know folks, uh, retain folks, develop relationships, for example, with us, your local office. Uh, so that you have the team in place on the outside when you need them. So again, hygiene, policies and procedures, and relationships. Those are the three things I would make sure 
you focus on in the short term. Great points. Thanks, Rich. Pete? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. Great points. I'm not sure I have much to add. I, if, if I was to give advice to any company today, it would, again, go back to ransomware. It would be, you know, think about um, whether it makes sense to have a policy around uh, paying it. Um, some, you know, think about, okay, whose decision is this? Um, is it a, 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 I would expect it to be a board level decision. Have that conversation now. Um, look at your incident response plan, and if it's not there, create just a checklist that's just focused on ransomware. All of the different um, steps that you might have to take, decisions you might have to make, and know what your insurance policy says. Good stuff. Thank you, Pete. Costas, wrap us up. Yeah, people, process, and technology, uh, I think, is uh, all uh, centered around the conversation that we're having here today and the continuous evolution uh, of your cybersecurity program. And don't forget, not every company is equal in terms of resources and expertise and capabilities. Um, and there are significant third parties that are involved in any company's uh, ecosystem. That's where I see this threat evolving to. That's why we're seeing a tremendous spike in ransomware attacks. The chaos the pandemic is creating, I, I think is an opportunity uh, for these criminals to really further isolate these smaller and mid-sized organizations uh, in times of crisis and forced payments. And, and I think my ask uh, here is for Rich and his colleagues to take a much more active role in targeting these organizations and taking them out uh, before uh, they continue, I think, on this uh, attack uh, bench that they're on. I mean, they are being relentless uh, in targeting municipal organizations, law enforcement themselves. We need your help to take these guys out. Good stuff. Thanks for the closing comments, everyone. We're going to open up for a few questions. I've already seen a couple that have come in. The first one is uh, uh, a hot potato one. Um, I said that a couple of times, but you know, you've, you've mentioned running tabletop exercises um, and your resilience plan to do them with the board. Um, do you run them with the scenario of a ransomware attack? And if it were real, would you pay? And the follow-up to it, would you refuse to pay? Anybody want to take a swing at that? You want me to start there, guys? I, I mean, I, I Yes, I, I today in, in October 2020, I think if you're going to take the time to do a thoughtful tabletop exercise, having a, a scenario that is in, that somehow involves ransomware makes a lot of sense. Um, in terms of pay, don't pay. I mean, those those are the conversations that you're, you're going to have during uh, the tabletop and even beforehand. If you if you, um, you know, put a policy in place, I, I, I would just say that. I can't tell you the number of times, and Rich, you probably can can um, share as well, where I, I'll, I'll start a, a ransomware incident will come in. It's a Sunday afternoon. Um, we drop everything. We dig in. The first conversations are sometimes um, from senior executives. We would never pay. We don't, you know, uh, negotiate with terrorists, so to speak. Um, and then a day goes by, two days, reality sets in, um, and they realize sometimes that they're losing millions of dollars a day. They can't service their customers. Their employees can't log in sometimes. Um, and it really becomes a, a business uh, decision. So um, I, I would 
I recommend if, if a company does have a policy ahead of time, it's sufficiently flexible to you know, incorporate all of the facts and circumstances of any given uh, incident. Great. Thanks for that, Pete. Um, there's, there's a couple others. I think this first one, this, this next one is, are you observing an increase in companies building their own in-house forensic capabilities as opposed to outside services? Um, I'll, I'll let you jump on this in a second, but from my perspective, I see companies all the time. It would behoove you to have your own uh, capability, but I would say have both. You don't have to bring outside firms in, but having a firm ready, having a firm, whether they're coming in to lead your investigation, to supplement your team, or just be extra arms and legs. Like I said, you don't have to use the third party, but having in-house capability would be uh, it, would, it would behoove you to do that. Anyone else? I, we've got one more, that is a couple more. If anyone wants to Rocco. take a quick swing at that as well. Yeah, Rocco, I'll, I'll take a shot at this. I, I think you absolutely have to have both. Uh, but again, I think the cautionary tale here is not every company uh, is equal in terms of resources, funding, and headcount. Uh, so I think it really depends on what your strategy is at the executive level and what you can actually afford to do inside the organization. Uh, most companies will not experience uh, a ransomware attack, uh, but those that do uh, will certainly take a very different approach going forward on some of this. It is always better to be prepared. And, and I think uh, depending again on the size and complexity of your organization, being smart about the options and choices that you're making based on your risks that you're seeing in your organization. It behooves you to have for sure external uh, expertise on retainer. Uh, I would say that includes legal representation as well as forensics. Um, and then if you can uh, and have the capability to build and maintain that talent within your walls, it also I think provides an advantage uh, for you because not every single incident you're going to encounter will require an external forensics uh, engagement. I think there's also the independence piece that, you know, it's, if it's something insider, if it's something that is going to have litigation, having that independence, have that, that objectivity is paramount. Rich, go ahead. I'm sorry. I'll just add, I, I think it is important to the extent you're capable of having an internal team because what you what you lose with an outside team and and there is a benefit to an outside team as well what you lose with an outside team is the ability to exercise in a way that you would with an internal team and also having a group that becomes very intimate in terms of their knowledge of the network where things are if you have an outside organization they may be coming in cold and trying to figure it out as they go uh, that said, there's a cost effectiveness associated with having an outside firm as well and that independent uh, body to look at things as well. So there's pros and cons to both. But if you can have an internal component, you can afford that. Uh, I would strongly recommend you have some capability within, within your own house. Great. Hey, here, here's another one, Pete. Thanks for that, Rich. That I, I think you can hit. Actually, everyone can. Are, are there any terms or phases of an investigation to avoid in a, a cyber incident investigation, i.e. don't call it a breach until you've confirmed it's an actual breach? Um, I've got some points on there, but go ahead, um, Pete. Okay. All right, that was for me. Uh, I think I understand the question. Yeah, I mean, you, you want to be, it goes back to communications. You want to be uh, 
really careful about how you're characterizing anything um, and, and installing, you know, instilling discipline around in certainly external communications to the variety of stakeholders, but also just internal communications. And um, yeah, that's where legal plays um, a big role, obviously. Um, you know, one of the things we tell companies is um, the, the people who are on the ground working the incident response, you know, Costas's team, um, be factual in your internal communications, avoid speculation, avoid commentary, um, just stick to, to what the facts are. When we're getting into how we're describing an event externally, whether, you know, what you're going to say to regulators is going to be different than what you're going to say to uh, the media, for example. And you, you've got all, you, you've got, you know, customers, you have employees, you have regulators, you have insurers, you have law enforcement. Um, each, you know, stakeholder uh, is going to get, um, you know, a different level of information and understanding that ahead of time and having templates in place um, uh, puts you in a really good position. Thanks right. for that, P. I know we're uh, coming to the top of the hour. One more quick question. And for those questions that we can't get to, we'll respond via email. Likewise, feel free to reach out. Last one, with a decentralized remote hybrid workforce going back, uh, what advice would you give the companies? I think if I'm reading that right, going back to the workforce, a lot of companies are hybrid. What advice would you give them? I'll give that anybody. Well, I, I, I'll take a stab at that. I think some of it we've, we've sort of talked about, um, and that is making sure that your, your infrastructure, your policies now reflect that new environment. Um, so you now need to plan for something you never anticipated in the past, and that is having a workforce that can potentially be dispersed in the future and come under attack, and how are you going to deal with that? So I think it's important now to just start thinking in this new framework, this new world, if you will, about how you will be able to cope and to handle future attacks um, you know, with the new model that you have, this new hybrid model, because I can almost guarantee most firms have never anticipated that in their previous planning. Uh, just make sure that you now know how to cope with that going forward. I think it just underscores all the points we've been saying around cyber resilience and planning. Who can honestly raise their hand a year ago and have planned that COVID, even eight months ago, that this is where we would be eight months later. So planning, 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 testing, testing, testing. Uh, Pete, I don't know if you had a point, um, but I, I think outside of that, just like to thank Rich, Pete, and Costas for a wealth of information. Thank you for making your time, and especially to the Bar Association and the attendees for giving us the opportunity to present to you. Uh, you should have our contact information in our bios. If anything else comes up, by all means, feel free to reach out. Again, thank you everyone, and especially um, the panelists that are uh, taking time out of their busy schedules. Thank you, have a nice day everyone, and be safe. Thank you, Rocco. Thanks, thank Rocco. You, Peter. Thank you, Chris. Thanks, Costas. Thank you, Mike.